The time has come to get ready for the 2022 World Cup. And what better way to prepare than by revisiting the World Cup's most amazing goals? I'm Brian Phillips. I'm making a podcast about the history of the Men's World Cup, told through the stories of 22 iconic goals. The show's called 22 Goals. It's out now on the Ringer Podcast Network, and we're having so much fun. It's the Ringer Gambling Show, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on all of the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the post and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gambling. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen at the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and up in President Select States. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I wanna wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC Pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Welcome into the Ringer Gambling Show. Austin Gale here with Warren Sharp. No longer the Thanksgiving edition. I miss the baklava. I miss the desserts. I think we should have done that every <laughs> single week. Maybe we'll kick it back up for Christmas. But this week, man, it might as well be Christmas. I, I was talking to Lindsey Jones uh, for the Power Rankings podcast. It's like, is every game good next week? You got Bills at Patriots on Thursday Night Football. Patriots are only four and a half point dogs at, at home. Jets at Vikings, minus three. Titans, Eagles. Eagles are five and a half point favorites, but that should be a physical tough game. Commanders at Giants. Commanders control their own destiny. The Commanders have the Giants this week, and they're one and a half point favorites on the road. And then they have the bye. And then when they come back from the bye, they play the Giants again at home. And if they beat the Giants twice in those three weeks, there's a really good chance this Commanders team makes the playoffs. I even think that the Rams-Seahawks game is going to be quite a treat. I know the Rams are seven and a half point dogs. We don't know who's even playing for them anymore. Cooper Cup, Al Robinson, Matthew Stafford, et cetera, et cetera. But man... Specifically, this 4 o'clock slate, or 4 o'clock slate on the East Coast, 1 o'clock slate on the West Coast, Seahawks at Rams, Dolphins at Niners, Chiefs at Bengals, Chargers at Raiders. All four of those games are sick. You have Saints at Bucks on Monday night. I, I am excited for this week, Warren. I don't know if you can tell. Yeah, and I am as well. And one of the interesting things as you're looking at the board, there aren't that many games that have a spread above seven points, you know, above a touchdown. You've got the Ravens. Broncos game, which the Ravens are favored by eight, eight and a half. Good teaser like candidate there, in my opinion. Uh, and you've got the, we were just discussing off camera, the Seahawks Rams game that's barely above seven. Um, and then you've got the Sunday night. Well, 
Yeah, the Sunday night game. Thankfully, they flex next week's Sunday night game, but we got to watch the Colts again this week. So uh, they're favored by uh, the Cowboys are favored by 11 points there. But other, otherwise, every single game is is within seven points, and it should be a competitive and fun game. A lot of playoff ramifications on the line, and, and some great battles between some good teams. So yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to this week's slate. I don't have the Broncos at Ravens game on the slate of games we're going to discuss today. But when you look at an eight and a half point spread on a 38 and a half total, those points mean more in a teaser leg. And I do like the Ravens potentially in a teaser leg there. 38 and a half points, lowest total on the slate between the Broncos and Ravens will be an interesting game. All right, let's begin this conversation with a sneaky, amazing game. Jets at Vikings. Vikings are only three point favorites over the Jets. I think if Zach Wilson's starting this game, they might be four point favorites, four and a half point favorites. Mike White, I'll say this. Every single person, you know, from last week's game, you know, Jets win 31-10 over the Chicago Bears. Chicago Bears defense was awful. Trevor Simeon played in this game. It was right. It was awful. It was a god-awful game for the Chicago Bears. Mike White, while the stats point to him being the next coming of Christ, 22 of 28 for 315 yards and three touchdowns. What I was most impressed with from Mike White and why I feel that the Jets are only three-point dogs on the road against a very good Minnesota Vikings team is he just kept the offense on schedule. I was talking to Steve Ruiz, and you could just see LaFleur, Mike LaFleur, the offensive play caller there, just exhale when like he called quick game and it was executed. You know, he, he called simple concepts and they were executed as they expected them to be. And that, in my opinion, is how the Jets, who have a very good defense, the top three defense in the NFL— actually be competitive and go to the playoffs. I do not think this Jets team is a playoff team with Zach Wilson. They were right to make the move when they did. Mike White, as good as the stats are, even if he regresses to league average, I think has this team competing for in the playoffs because he's keeping the offense on schedule. He's running the plays that are called. He's not throwing the ball away, th- throwing the ball in harm's way. His time to throw was way down. His he, Everything was so much better. I felt like I was just exhaling. I wasn't shocked or amazed at how talented Mike White looked or how good they looked against a bad Bears defense. But I think the the word I keep using is just exhale. It's like, wow, okay, this is what the Jets can look like. This is what it could be when you don't have a quarterback that's actively losing you football games. I'm excited about the Jets. I'm excited about Mike White. I am as well. Um, Obviously, you know, a lot of the haters, there's there's definitely some haters out there that um, when they're looking at this game, they think about, oh, well, they just played the... Chicago Bears, you know, the worst defense in the NFL. So obviously, obviously, they're going to look good. But I then counter with what do you think the Minnesota Vikings defense is, right? Like exactly. We looked at the we look at the at the t- defenses that the Jets have faced. And this was why we knew Mike White was going to come out and look pretty good. Now, granted, the fashion he did it, the best game that better than any game. Uh, the Zach Wilson has ever played from an EPA per dropback perspective. Uh, but if you look at the defenses that the Jets have played in the prior like month before that Bears game, it was nothing but top 10 defenses. They played th- four games against top 10 defenses, three games. The last three games were against top three defenses. Then they played the Bears. The Vikings ranked 23rd. So the Bears might be one of the worst defenses in the league, but the Vikings rank as the 10th worst defense in the league. And I think that they can be exploited in a number of different areas. Number one, they allow the league's second highest completion percentage. So that's going to help Mike White uh, convert passes and move the ball. And they allow 8.3 yards per attempt, which is dead last in the NFL. Um, The Vikings also rank number 27 in red zone defense. They allow the number eight most trips to the red zone. When teams are in the red zone, they allow the seventh highest touchdown rate. 
uh, and opposing offenses are recording the number one highest success rate per play inside of the red zone versus this Vikings defense. So I think that all of that bodes pretty well. Um, and then, you know, I am, am looking at this Vikings offense versus the Jets defense. I think that's kind of the, the place that I have the most questions because this jet, like how great is this Jets defense? This Jets defense looks superior. Do they do the things that cause Kirk Cousins problems? And, you know, since week six, the Jets rank league average in pressure rate and they blitz at the fifth lowest rate of any defense. So, you know, we're getting to a point, I don't say we're there yet. Uh, and obviously it's a small sample size sport. So I don't want to always get rid of like the first few games that a team has played, but so much of the NFL revolves around teams figuring out who they are changing their strategies and priorities to adapt better to the personal they have. There's a lot of moving parts every offseason. A couple key players in and out, defensive coordinator in and out, like new coaching staff, these types of things. And so week one and week two aren't necessarily super predictive, you know, to include those when you're looking at like a week 13 game. So if you use more recent data as we progress through the season, which I tend to do, and I, I put lower weight and lower priority on what happened week one and two, I start looking at things like that. Like this team is league average and pressure rate. They blitz at the fifth lowest rate. Kirk has big splits when he's pressured or when he's not. And the fact that he's just went up against two teams that play that ranked uh, top two in the NFL in pressure rate the last two games, the Dallas Cowboys and the New England Patriots. And now he's going to face the Jets. And yes, the Jets have a very good defense and I'm not trying to undermine them at all. I'm just saying that they don't get pressure like those other two. I was personally surprised and impressed by the way the Vikings adapted on a short week after they got their butts kicked against the Cowboys in that pass rush without Christian Derrissaw to perform like they did against this New England Patriots defense. You know, I was not expecting that level of performance against this Patriots defense on a short week. Now they have extra time to prepare for a Jets defense. I don't know. I, I think it's going to be a great game, and I do see some edges for uh, the offense of the Jets. But also, you know, I'm I'm really intrigued by this Robert Sala defense going up against Kirk Cousins and Kevin O'Connell and trying to see what that offense might be able to do against a defense that is not going to get as much pressure as the Cowboys or the Patriots did. Going back to that Vikings-Patriots game on Thanksgiving, I think we both handicapped or looked at the Patriots as potentially valuable as a dog in that game. They lose 33-26. to 26. Kirk Cousins in that one, I thought looked had one of the better games of, his, of the season. And yeah. it was a heavy play-action game. Dalvin Cook could not effectively run the football. I think the New England Patriots sold out to stop the run and a lot of three interior linemen in between the tackles and that bare front. I think that limited their pass rush because they weren't having guys pinning their ears back. And that ultimately led to a heavy play action game and a lot of Kirk Cousins having success. And I think when you have Kirk playing as well as he did on Thanksgiving, and Dalvin, even if Dalvin Cook gets stifled, you could have you know success throwing the football with Adam Taylor, Justin Jefferson, TJ Hawkinson. I think you saw that Un uh, the offense unlocked that a little bit. I was surprised and shocked as well. I, I, I think that outside of that boneheaded interception targeting, targeting KJ Osborne, that Kirk game was very, very good. And on the other side of the ball, and why I think Mike White and the Jets offense has edges, Mac Jones looked phenomenal against, against this Vikings defense. I think over 380 passing yards. The first play of that game, Mac, Jan Mac Jones is under center, drops the snap, picks it up, 
takes a step back, takes a drop back, and drops an absolute dime to Jacoby, to Jacoby Myers. Maybe the best throw of the season. One of the best throws of his career. I think from then, he was just playing with so much more confidence. I've been holding in like quarterback confidence, Warren. After watching, so there, there's a couple correlations here. After watching HBO's Hard Knocks, and you just continue to see Buda Baker specifically, like how emotional this game is for everyone. Jamal Williams crying before the season for the Detroit Lions, about how, mo- you know, how much this game matters, how much they need to win. Buda Baker at the low points of the Arizona Cardinals season, crying as one of the leaders and people responding to that. Be- the emotions matter, man. This is a human game. And when you look at the confidence that Tua Tagovailoa is playing with this season, and I don't know if you saw the story, CBS was tweeting it out, that last season Tua Tagovailoa was looking himself in the mirror and asking himself, do I suck out loud? And now he's throwing with some of the best confidence, anticipation, and timing of any quarterback in the league. Mac Jones had no confidence to start the season. And when you look at specifically money downs, one of the worst quarterbacks throwing beyond the sticks on money downs. And I think that's because actually getting to your drop and throwing beyond the sticks, throwing, putting the ball, pushing the ball downfield, putting the ball in harm's way requires one arm talent, one all these different things, understanding defense, all that stuff, but it requires fucking confidence. You have to go out there and be like, yes, I'm going, I can make these throws. I can avoid putting the ball in harm's way. I can actually actually you know move this offense when we get into situations like third and six third and seven third and eight and i think you saw that against minnesota for whatever reason part of me wants to believe that he dropped the snap on the first play and dropped the dime he's like wait a second am i sick am i god am i the best ever it's like when kevin in the office traps the bat in the in the kitchen he's like am i a hero that's exactly what happened <laughs> with mac jones dropping the snap and throwing a dime to Kobe Myers. because i thought that was one of the best games we saw from him too how much of that is the vikings defense i mean they're 31st in yards per play allowed. They're 31st in forcing three and outs. Only the Detroit Lions force fewer three and outs than the Minnesota Vikings. Like they are a team you can have success against. I see edges for Mike White, and I see less edges as you know, you mentioned that the Jets defense isn't getting pressure at the same rate as you know others are. I, I see less edges for Kirk and the Vikings against this Jets defense. And I think that's because they have legitimate quarterbacks. DJ Reed, Ahmad Garner, both those guys could go toe-to-toe with some of the best receivers in the NFL. I'm not saying Justin Jefferson isn't going to get his, but it's going to be better than what the New England Patriots were trying to get. The New England Patriots need to create pressure in order for that defense to work because the back end is not all all that talented. For the Jets, yes, they need to create pressure. Every team needs to create pressure, but they do have a lot of talent on the back end so much that I think you could slow down. Compared to what we saw against the Patriots, I think you could slow down what this Vikings team has. Yeah, that's. I'm really intrigued to just see how on that side of the ball, when the Vikings have it, how Kevin O'Connell chooses to call this offense, how much they're going to lean on the run, how much they're going to test the boundary cornerbacks, how much they're going to try to incorporate the tight end Hawkinson into the mix, how much they're going to try to throw the ball to the back out of the backfield. Like, just I I just really want to see what his strategy is against a defense like the Jets have. Would be it's it's a tough game to handicap. I think three is the right number. Totals at forty five and a half. I don't have a strong lean either way there as well. If it got to three and a half, I'd take the Jets. If I could get a hook, I'd probably take the Jets. I don't know if I like it at three. I don't know if I, I'll probably stay away from this game ultimately. I think it's just a game to watch, a game to view. Um, as as Jets right now, according to five thirty eight playoff predictions model, fifty three percent chance to make the playoffs right now. It is it is not a guarantee for the New York Jets, but if they win in Minnesota. Those odds could jump as high as 74%. They have some tough games these next two weeks at Minnesota, at Buffalo. Got to come out with a win, I think, in one of those for them to stave off the Chargers, the Patriots, who have a tiebreaker, obviously, over them. will be interesting to see. Next on the docket, Titans at Eagles. This game, I think, is going to be sick as well. Titans and Eagles. Eagles are five-and-a-half-point favorites at home. Totals at 44-and-a-half. 
Titans are coming off a little bit of a stinker. Only, only scored 16 against the Cincinnati Bengals. Derrick Henry averaged 2.2 yards per carry. Big Lou got into his bag, threw out the bare fronts on early downs. They tried to run the ball on first down, tried to run the ball on second down. There's a play. Go back and watch that game, the Tennessee Titans-Bengals game. There's a play where the Tennessee Titans only have five offensive linemen, no, no tight ends on either end. Um, the, the Bengals only have five players in the box, but it's DJ Reader on, uh, head up on the center. It just anchors the entire defense to force you know, Derrick Henry to maybe make too many decisions behind the line of scrimmage. Logan Wilson flows in, and it's a limited gain on the second and 12. Like the Titans offense, or specifically running Derrick Henry, was not working against the Cincinnati Bengals. Big Lou sold out with a lot of bare fronts, a lot of like team defense, Mike Hilton, Eli Apple, defense backs actually making plays on the running back, tackling at the line of scrimmage, so much that the Titans had to be a different team against the Bengals in order to win. They had to push the ball downfield. They had to target Nick Whisper at Kakina, had to target you know, Robert Woods and Traylon Burks, a receiving core that I think teams are excited to play man coverage against, right? Traylon Burks is good, explosive, big, but a lot of his best receptions have been down the football field and in contested situations. His first touchdown of the year was picking up a screen that um, Derrick Henry fumbled in the end zone. I, I think that this Titans team really struggled to live without Derrick Henry. We saw the Mike Rabel postgame screaming match in the locker room. It was like the only difference between us and every team in the NFL is Derrick Henry. So when you stop Derrick Henry, I, I, I do think you force the Titans into some weird situations. Todd Downing, the offense coordinator there. There's a sequence at the end of the game where... The Titans are first down. They run the ball as they have been all game. And has it hasn't worked all game. It, it gets stuffed. Second and 10. They call this dumbass screen to the right to Dontre Hilliard. And like the Titans players are even giving up on the play. It's like second and 14. It, it, it looks like the Bengals have it sifted out. Tannehill throws it anyway. It's tackled for a loss. It ends up being like third and forever. And then on that play, they call uh, you know a pass behind the sticks to kind of push the ball a little bit further, put it in the field goal range to take it from 20 to 13 to 20 to 16, and the Titans don't get the ball back. Like that, I don't know. I, I, I don't love when the spotlight is on Downing and he can't just say, Derrick Henry, be different. I don't love this Titans offense. I think there's some you said You there. said everything right there. You said everything right there. Todd Downing, end of game. Yes. That's all I <laughs> needed to hear. That's all I needed to hear. This, this guy should simply be locked in a room Drop the script for a game. Mike Vrabel say, stand up, go to a different room, lock him in that room, <laughs> drop another script for the game. Do that three times, three more, two more times, four in total. And that's what they call in the first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, and fourth quarter. Because this guy's script is great, but what he does after that script runs out is a disaster. I, I, I'm worried, man. I'm worried. I think that sequence where ultimately the Titans lose that game, right? Uh, third and 14. They call a play to get the ball closer to the first down marker to set up a better field goal when they're trailing by seven late in the fourth quarter. The Cincinnati Bengals don't even give the ball back. I don't know, man. I, I, I worry about the Titans when, when Derrick Henry gets stifled. Now, it's easier said than done. Not everyone's Big Lou. Not everyone has a DJ Reader, a BJ Hill, Sam Hubbard, all these dogs to stop Jermaine Pratt, Sam um, Logan Wilson. Not every defense has these dogs that can actually sell out to stop the Titans' run game and stop Derrick Henry. But when you do, when you do, uh, it forces them into awkward situations, situations that Downing doesn't want to be in, Rabel doesn't want to be in, Tannehill doesn't want to be in, this receiving court doesn't want to be in. All that stuff happens, and that that worries me. They're, they're five-and-a-half-point dogs against the Eagles, uh, and I, I worry about this offense. And the Eagles, I don't think, at least defensively, have you know the same talent, specifically on the interior, as a DJ Reader and a BJ Hill, but they did just add Linval Joseph and Dabakong Su. They have physical players on the edges. I really like Josh Wett. This is a team that, 
I don't know if Jordan Davis is back healthy. If he is, that would be a massive win. But this is a team that I think has to have a similar game plan defensively and slowing Derrick Henry and forcing them to beat you through the air, forcing them to lean on the receiving core. I think that if they could do that as effectively as the Bengals did, I, I do like the Eagles minus, 50, Eagles minus 55 and a half. 50, 55 and a half, sorry. Well, I was going to say, I'll take the other side of that one. Um, <laughs> no, I, I look, the, you, you mentioned a great, It's a to me, it's a juxtaposition because Big Lou and the way that the Cincinnati Bengals played defense with DJ Raider there and they were stacking the box I mean, they stacked the box on like 56% or more of Derrick Henry's rushing attempts. Like, that's exactly the opposite of the way that the Eagles play defense. I mean, the Eagles do not play defense that way. The Eagles, uh, historically, this season, are trying to sit back and play the pass. They aren't coming up and stacking the box. Um, They're trying to get the the run stuffed with their defensive line, which hasn't been going as well. I would be shocked if they... Uh, actually activate Jordan Davis. Um, I mean, they just uh, brought him back, his 20-day window to start. He just started practicing again with the team today. Um, I would be shocked if he played in this game. That's part of the reason why, like, in their effort to replace him and their concern, like, oh gosh, we can't stop the run without this guy. They went and added the players that you mentioned with Indomitian Sue being the one that I think is better than Linval Joseph. I mean, so I don't know that they would they would rush Jordan Davis back and risk re-injury. We'll see what ends up happening there. Uh, but I just think that Derrick Henry should be able to have a little bit of success. Every single team that's running the football against the Eagles is having success. Um, and so I think Derrick Henry should join that group. Now, it has been concerning the last several weeks that he hasn't done nearly as much on the ground. When you look at you know two of their opponents, it's not surprising that against the Bengals, who have a good run defense, and against the Broncos, who have a great defense overall, that he would struggle to run the ball. I was expecting more out of him uh, against the Green Bay Packers. They obviously won that game 27-17, to 17, so they didn't need him to do a whole lot, but he still wasn't nearly as productive on the ground there. So that is a slight red flag that I'm considering. Um, but I think they're, you know, we know what the Tennessee Titans are. That's the that's the the thing that is tricky about handicapping this team, but also should be far more obvious because it's just like, we know what this team is, but every single time we go into games and we want to doubt them because they're not sexy, they're not flashy, they have Ryan Tannehill as a quarterback and they don't have the receivers and everything in modern football and fantasy football and everything that we've been led to believe is like, who's sexy on this team? I I, want, I need a quarterback. You don't have a quarterback? Do you have a premier wide receiver? You don't have that anymore? Like, I'm not really interested in thinking about your team too much. And Mike Vrabel just gets it done with Derrick Henry and sound, solid defense. And that's one of the things this team does. They typically run the ball well and stop the run really well. And so I don't know how much efficiency we're going to get out of the Eagles' non-Jalen Hurts rushing attack. And I'm wondering how much Nick Sirianni pivots immediately to the passing attack and just looks to throw the ball a ton. They have this familiarity edge with A.J. Brown and this Titans defense. A.J. Brown obviously playing in Tennessee for a while, knowing these DBs and knowing how to beat them from practice. How does Mike Vrabel game plan against that? How does A.J. Brown perform uh, in this situation? How much is he telling Jalen Hurts and Nick Sirianni about how they need to try to attack this team? Um, I, I think that is a fascinating element to this game. 
One other thing, though, that I, I think about, I don't know exactly ultimately where the public is going to come down on this game, but I do know if you look at these teams and you look at, you know, familiarity, sorry, recency, you have a team that was at home and just lost to the Bengals, and you have a Philadelphia Eagles team that is winning their games and has one loss. And I think when people look at that record, they see the one with the, with the Philadelphia Eagles as one loss. This is the only one loss team in the NFL. That means something. And I pulled a trend. Teams that have one or fewer losses from week 12 onward are 9-23 and 23 ATS to close the season since 2014, including 5-21 and 21 ATS when not laying double digits, which is exactly what the Eagles are. So they're a popular team, a team that's won a ton of games for the public, a team that looks to be the part. Everybody's penciling them in as the number one seed in the NFC. And these teams typically down the stretch when they've only had one loss are losing eight, over 80% of their games ATS. So it's hard. And we know what Mike Vrabel is against teams in this role as an underdog. He's the number one best underdog coach in the NFL. The one thing that is a little odd to me about this game and about the line in general is the Eagles closes a six-point home favorite in their very last game to the Green Bay Packers. Now the Eagles are open this week and they were laying more than six points to the Tennessee Titans at home one week apart. Are the Packers better than the Titans? I mean, the Titans just went on the road on a short week into Green Bay and beat the Packers 27 to 17. The Philadelphia Eagles should not be laying the same amount of points against a Tennessee Titans team as they were against the Green Bay Packers team. This line should be significantly shorter than this. So that's the interesting element to me in this game. And, and we need to make sure that Derrick Henry is, a, is at 100% because he has not played very well the last three weeks. The production is much worse. But if he is fine, this line is wrong. If he's injured, then I understand the line a little bit more. We'll be interesting to see if Derrick Henry or shows up on the injury report or how that goes. I, I will say this. The Eagles are not going to have the same success, regardless of how they approach this game from a game plan perspective defensively, are not going to have the same success slowing the Titans run game down as the Bengals did. They don't have the dogs to do it. They don't have a B.J. Hill. They don't have a D.J. Reader. They don't have those guys, especially with Jordan Davis still on the IR, still in that window. The other side of the ball, I don't think the Eagles, who just beat up on a pillow-soft Packers run defense, like honestly one of the most embarrassing run defense run defenses I've ever seen. They ran for the most running yard rushing yards in a single game for the franchise since 1948. Like holy shit, Packers just got absolutely exposed. I don't think the Eagles have that same success against the Titans. I do think the Titans defense has missed Zach Cunningham. He's been on the injured reserve, I believe, since Week Nine. He's the uh, off ball linebacker that plays opposite of David Long. They've rotated in mostly Dylan Cole, but Monty Rice has also played in that spot as well. That isn't a weak link. I think Dylan Cole's a talented player. But I do think it's an area where Cunningham was so good against the run. Now, Dylan Cole may be a step back from that. And I think you're seeing, if you watch that Bengals game, some of those runs break in Cole's responsibility with Samaj P. Ryan, then running more gap stuff and all those things. I, I, I do think that hearing that stat about, one, the Titans as an underdog, but also these like 10-1 teams when the public is you know, betting up an Eagles team up to maybe five and a half, six, when they were just a six-point favorite of the Packers, it screams value 
on the Titans. It, it really does. And I, I think that Titans coming off a letdown where I will say, you know, there were a couple deep shots where Tannehill was a little bit off or the receiver couldn't haul it in. Eli Apple made a great play on the ball, which you rarely see. A couple deep shots in that game where the Titans maybe win that one and maybe the spread is a little bit tighter. I think the loss also playing into that for the, for the Tennessee Titans. I, I, I like the Titans at plus five and a half. I'm, I'm probably going to lay, lay the five and a half and I might even sprinkle a half unit on the money line. Dolphins at 49ers. 49ers is a three-and-a-half-point favorite at home. People are going to say the Cincinnati Bengals game, you know, Chiefs at Bengals, is the game of the week. But this is 1B, my guy. Dolphins at Niners. You got McDaniel versus Shanahan in an absolute treat of a game where both teams are near guaranteed to make the playoffs. It's not like either team could knock one off, play spoiler. But, man, we're going to see two electric offensive play callers. One uh, on the Niners side coming off of... of a weird game where they couldn't get a lot of things going. 49ers win 13-0 over the New Orleans Saints. And for the Dolphins, one where they let off the gas pedal against the Texans like in the third quarter. Dolphins win 30-15. to Skylar Thompson relieved Tua, I think, like halfway through the third. They weren't even winning by more than three possessions. Interested to see how you handicap this, handicap this game, Warren. Two really talented football teams right now. 49ers getting the hook. For me, some of that might be the offensive line injuries, right? Teron Armstead left the game with a pack. He's not going to play in this game. Austin Jackson... Played in his first game back at right tackle. It was awful. Like legitimately dreadful in his first game back. He also got an ankle injury in that game. And it's questionable this week. We don't know if he's going to play. I'm worried, man. I'm worried about this offensive line. Now, the Dolphins do a good job of getting the ball out quick. And Tua has been so good. Like I said, confident, anticipation, timing, all that stuff. I'm really moving the offense. But there's only so many injuries along the offensive line before it starts to show up. And if you have to play Brandon Shell at left tackle and a green banged up Austin Jackson at right tackle already with some concerns at right guard. I think Liam Eikenberg hasn't played for a while and they've been playing Robert Jones who looked like dog shit in this last game. Like this is a bad Dolphins offensive line. Overcoming that against a Niners defense that'll eat you alive. Nick Bosa will eat you alive. There's one player on the edge better than Bosa right now and it's Garrett, Miles Garrett. Nick Bosa is the second best edge in the NFL. I don't even think it's fucking close. Like he has been phenomenal this year. He's going to eat Branchell alive. He might eat Austin Jackson alive. I'm scared. I'm scared. I don't know. It's hard to handicap this game and not see just how big of a weakness the Dolphins have along the offensive line and, and how much of a strength, obviously, that is for a San Francisco 49ers team that obviously just shut out the New Orleans Saints. Yeah, I hear you. I that That's, to me, is the biggest disappointment is the injury report heading into this game because I really wanted to see what Mike McDaniel was going to do and call against this uh, 49ers defense that he does have familiarity with. And I'm interested to hear your take in a minute um, about who has the edge here, the familiarity element, right? Like Mike McDaniel knowing this defense and going up against it in practice so frequently versus this defense knowing the style of offense that Mike McDaniel plays. Because the reality is, I think the run games between the 49ers and the Dolphins are probably more similar than the pass games. The pass game itself for the Dolphins is down the field, quick passing that doesn't rely on yak. And and whereas the, you know, that's one of the things that we thought, were they going to get a lot of yak? They're actually not getting a lot of yak. The 49ers offense relies on a low target depth, a lot of passes in the flats and getting the yak down the field by the receivers after that. So the style of offense is 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 very different from a passing perspective, but from a rushing perspective, it's probably a lot more similar. And the 49ers obviously see this every day going up against uh, Kyle Shanahan's offense for, for years now. The thing about this game, in addition to that, 
is I'm very curious to see how Mike McDaniel performs and Tua does as well inside of the red zone. I was just on Simmons' podcast yesterday going over and discussing how red zone offense is down league-wide tremendously. Um, We are seeing the fewest rates of red zone drives that score points since 2011. We are seeing fewer points scored per red zone drive since 2014. Those are slightly different uh, metrics. One is looking at how often is a drive scoring points of any kind? The second is how uh, how many points per drive are these red zone drives averaging? Red zone offense is down. Red zone offense has been problematic this season. Handing the ball off to your running back has been fine. Scrambling your quarterback has been fine. Quarterbacks dropping back to throw the football down inside of the red zone, particularly when the defense is not blitzing, is at a almost all-time low. It is the production of these dropbacks when the defense is playing coverage inside the red zone has been pretty darn terrible. Tua, on the other hand, in this Mike McDaniel offense, is off the hook inside of the red zone. I mean, Tua ranks number one this season in success rate, number one this season in percentage of passes that are touchdowns that he throws in the red zone. 36% of his passes that he throws in the red zone result in touchdowns. His success rate overall is 57%. That's also number one. EPA per attempt is number two. And if you look at where Tua's career ranks with this year incorporated, obviously, compared to every single other quarterback since 2000, Tua is number one in success rate and number one in touchdown rate. So uh, he's he's this offense is playing extremely well in the red zone, whereas the league-wide averages is dropping off. What I wonder is, you know, we we heard these stats. We see, you know, Andy Dalton and, and Alvin Kamara fumbling the ball and Andy Dalton throwing interceptions down inside the red zone and would keep talking about this red zone defense of the San Francisco 49ers. Um, it should be mentioned that, yes, while against the, you know, Chargers and Cardinals and Saints, those teams, they've allowed five total red zone trips the last three games and only one red zone touchdown the last three games to those three teams that they just played. Immediately prior to that, they played the Falcons, the Rams, and the Chiefs, only one of which was an elite offense. And the 49ers allowed 10 red zone trips and nine red zone touchdowns. So we went from like nine red zone touchdowns in a three-game span to one red zone touchdown the last three weeks. And what we can say is that the Saints, the Cardinals, and the Chargers don't really compare to the offenses of like the Chiefs and at least the Falcons. And it's one of the other overarching angles to this game, in my opinion, is this 49ers defense is absolutely balling a top five unit, number two against the run, number 10 against the pass. Who have they played? They've played the second easiest schedule of opposing passing attacks. If you look at their overall offensive efficiency since week three, they played the Denver Broncos, the Rams twice, the Panthers, the Cardinals, the Saints. Every single one of those teams ranks bottom 10. Most of them are bottom five. The only teams that they've played since week two when they played the Seahawks that have a offense that's above average are the Falcons and the Kansas City Chiefs. Both those teams scored at least 28 points and the 49ers lost both of those games. And now you're playing the number two offense of the Miami Dolphins. So the the I just wanted to see this matchup. I wanted to see great versus great, how this compares. 
I am disappointed, though. There's going to have to be a lot of adjustments because of those offensive line injuries that you highlighted. It is going to be a major factor. It is going to be basically what decides this game, in my opinion. The other thing is, I think you've got the Dolphins defense and both these defenses, in fact, very good against the run. Both of these defenses are very solid against the run. Um, I think how quickly does Kyle start passing the football here? How quickly does he lean into the pass game as opposed to try to run? That's going to determine how much upside uh, this San Francisco 49ers offense has overall. I, I, I think that the Miami Dolphins defensive line, who I think has a lot of talent, you know, Christian Wilkins, Bradley Chubb, Jalen Phillips has been uh, a phenomenal player along the edge for them. They need to show up in this one. Because if it is a one-sided trouncing, by the San Francisco 49ers defensive line, and they're just beaten up on an injury-played Dolphins offensive line, I, I think that the San Francisco 49ers should pull away from this game with a win and, and, and a convincing one at that. But on the other side of the ball, you just made this move for Bradley Chubb. Jalen Phillips is, is hitting his stride. Christian Wilkins is playing well. Against the 49ers offensive line that in this past game, starter Spencer Burford went down. Daniel Brunscore replaced him. I think there's opportunity at the guard spots and taking advantages of some of those mismatches. That's Aaron Banks at left guard. And whether it's Brunscore or Burford at right guard, I think there's opportunity there. At right tackle, Mike McGlinchey hasn't been the guy that, uh, that they've needed him to be. I, I, I think that this Dolphins defensive line needs to show up. Not just to get pressure on Jimmy Garoppolo and force him into mistakes, but to slow this run game down. I thought the New Orleans Saints game plan in terms of shutting down Christian McCaffrey specifically and, and trying to create, create penetration against the run, I thought was good. I, I, I think they kept their defensive line fresh. They were rotating a lot of guys in. David Onyemade, uh, Shai Tuttle, Carl Granderson. Like they had a lot of guys in, um, and I think it helped beat up on a 49ers offensive line that has had significant, significant success. Go back to that Cardinals game in Mexico City. Significant success against opposing defenses. I think that this Dolphins defensive line has to show up. I think that has to be one of the biggest coaching moments of this week. You guys have an opportunity to disrupt this game for us while the Miami offensive line is going to be struggling, man. I, there's no way about it. They don't even, the Niners don't have to game plan to beat up on this Dolphins offensive line. It's just a clear talent mismatch what the San Francisco 49ers have versus what the Dolphins have with Brand Shell replacing Terran Armstead and obviously Austin Jackson back. I don't like it. I really don't like it. Other parts of this game where I feel like there are mismatches potentially in the um, Dolphins' favor is that you're right in that the San Francisco 49ers defense hasn't gone against a lot of passing offenses or a lot of really good passing offenses. And if you can find any way to get the ball out quickly and have Tua Tungvaloa, as he has all season, just pointing and shoot, pointing and shoot, pointing and shoot. It can nullify a lot of what's great about the San Francisco 49ers defense. And I think the secondary isn't all world-beating from a talent perspective, but they get pressure constantly. They get pressure constantly. They're really well-coached. But if you are just getting easy completions, quick, quick, and getting the ball out, I think the Dolphins can still move the football. I think this Dolphins offense against the Niners defense with the injuries they have along the offensive line is going to be maybe 0.8 of what it's been this season. But the, for the 49ers offense, it was an ugly game against the Saints. Only 13 points scored in that game. Went for it in the red zone a couple times. Did not have a good red zone offense, like you said. I, I, I think that Jimmy Garoppolo in that game as well was asked to do a lot more than maybe he wanted to. And I think that when you, when, that's when you start to see the wheels fall off for this 49ers offense. If you could slow McCaffrey, you could slow the run game and force Jimmy G to beat you, you have a leg, you have, you'll have a horse in the race. I think the Dolphins, with the investment in Chubb, I haven't been a supporter of Josh Boyer, and you look at how that defense, they relieved Tua Tungabailoa, but there were still starters on defense in that game. Just how much they could let off the gas against a bad Texans team that was starting Kyle Allen. Like, yeah, in the first half, they looked great, but after that, you could see where the holes were. This Miami defense has to show up this week. 
has to show up. They have talent. They have to show up this week. I think that's going to be the biggest mismatch and, and the biggest determiner in this game. Does the Dolphins' defensive line completely fall on its back and, and not show up in this one, not limit Jimmy G, not limit Christian McCaffrey, while Nick Bosa and company ruin everything Mike McDaniel and Tua Tagovailoa built? That will be, I think, the biggest determiner of this one. Finally, Cincinnati Bengals hosting the Kansas City Chiefs. Bengals are two and a half point dog at home. Total set at 52 and a half. I think it's the highest total on the slate. Bengals coming off a, obviously, a, a game we talked about, a win over the Titans 20 to 16. Lou Anaruma won that game for them. The offense, well, I've given credit to Zach Taylor. He, he's added more gap scheme and all that stuff. The offense, I think, is still dependent on, hey, we have Joe Burrow on money downs. He's going to put the ball in the right place, whether it's Trenton Irwin, T. Higgins, or whoever we have at receiver without Jamar Chase, we're going to find a way to get it done. But I think the biggest tip of the cap I want to make is to Luana Rumo every single week takes away you know, the offense is what they do best, right? Luana Rumo, I think, has done a really good job of being variable and multiple as a defensive play caller. That, in my opinion, and I've said this a thousand times, is evidence of a really good coach. A coach willing to adapt not just his you know, defensive philosophy and scheme to his personnel, but also the opposing personnel. And you saw that against Tennessee, and you've seen that against other, de- uh, other offenses this season. Some of that, I think, has bled into or seeped into what Zach Taylor is doing offensively, specifically on early downs. Cincinnati, since week five, is the number two team in EPA per rush on early downs. They're also or, or on all downs. They're also the number one team in EPA per play on early downs since week five. What's changed? What's happened? Some of that's improvement. Some of that's just like ironing out the kinks. But a lot of that is a significant move away from inside-outside zone runs. In weeks one to four, 49% of what the Bengals were doing were inside zone, outside zone runs. They moved that to just 18% over the last, uh, or, or since week five. They've also called a lot more shotgun runs. You know, they're averaging 19 runs per game under center in the first four games. Now they're just 10. More shotgun run concepts, a lot of that being gap, and I think they're having success there. And that's been without Joe Mixon for some of this too. Samaj P. Run against the Titans having success in this run game. The other piece of this is they are having Joe Burrow complete a higher percent of his passes on these early downs. In the first four weeks of the season, you know, we talk a lot about on early downs, pushing the ball downfield, pushing the ball downfield. A lot of these were 50-50 go balls in this offense. And in the first four down in the first four weeks of the season, he had a, I think the ninth highest average depth of target and a and a higher average time to throw on early downs through the first four weeks than he had uh, significantly higher than what he has now. He is he was pushing the ball downfield, hanging on, trying to make a play, taking more sacks. Now, early downs when they are calling passes, which they're doing at a higher rate than they were early parts of the season. It's near the line of scrimmage, high completion rate stuff. Let these guys make plays after the catch. He ranks top five in completion rate on early downs since week five. Like, this offense has actually changed. And I think you saw in early parts of the season him say, I think we found our identity now. And some of that, maybe, you know, some of that was like, okay, they're running more gap, they're running more shotgun. I also think it's like, hey, Burrow, let's just get the ball out on early downs. You know, we don't have to. We don't have a downfield passing game on early downs and an offensive line that's protecting well enough to like really create what we wanted to do in weeks one through four where we're doing 50-50 balls down the field. We're going to run shallow underneath stuff on early downs, get the ball out, high completion rate, and let's move the ball. Let's have success on those downs. And that's what they've done. I think the Cincinnati Bengals offense now, like I said earlier, is the number one offense since week five in EPA per play on early downs. Better than the Chiefs, better than the Dolphins, better than these other offenses because of how they've been able to be multiple on that side of the ball. It's the first time we've been able to say that about Zach Taylor, honestly, and this offense. Every single week, it feels like the same problem. Now, gap scheme, can run out of the shotgun, calling underneath stuff on early downs, not just 50-50 balls. That, in my opinion, makes the Bengals this year more than last year 
bigger Super Bowl contenders. I like the Bengals more this year than I did last year going into what should be a playoff run. Right now, according to 538's model, 74% chance to get in. They need wins against a very tough schedule to do it. But still, this Bengals team is legit, legit. I really do like how they've made changes defensively and offensively. It's hard not to back them in this spot. Now, they are going against the best quarterback in the NFL, the best offense in the NFL, and I'm scared. So I don't know how much love I can throw on the Bengals in a very tough game against the Chiefs. But man, I have to tip my cap. They have been really, really good since a slow start to the season. You know, the reason they're 7-4, the reason they're not guaranteed to go to the playoffs is because they lost two teams early parts of the season that they shouldn't have lose to, lost to. At home against the Steelers, lost. Can't do that. You can't do that. So I, I'm interested to see how you handicap this game. I, I, I like what the Bengals have done. It's why they were able to go to Tennessee and get a win. It's why they've been able to have success down the stretch. But man, they have the toughest opponent probably on their entire season right now with the Kansas City Chiefs coming to Cincinnati. Yeah, starting on the Kansas City defensive side of the ball, you know, how are they going to match up? Oh, you mentioned all the adjustments and the tweaks that the Bengals have been making offensively. Now they're probably going to get Jamar Chase back. I don't know if they're going to work him in at, at full capacity or if they're going to ease him in to play. But this Chiefs defense ranks number 18, and they've played a very soft schedule of opposing offenses. It's, some, of these, some of these numbers are pretty shocking to me, at least. The, the Chiefs have played one rushing attack all year that ranks above average, and that was the Raiders. The Chiefs have played one red zone offense all year that ranks above average, and that was the Tennessee Titans. They've played just three passing attacks all year that rank above average in yards per attempt. The, the 49ers, Bills, and Titans. So I mean, after this game, yeah, the Chiefs are going to go back to playing some terrible offenses. They're going to play the Broncos, and then they're going to play the Houston Texans. But this is that game where they have to step up in class. It's going to be a major shock to their system going up against so many bad offenses. And now all of a sudden, they're going to be taking on the Cincinnati Bengals team that is surging, that is balanced, that can run the ball, that can pass the ball. And the Bengals rushing attack, I told you I like to look at things like sort of leaning a little bit more on what's been happening recently. Uh, the Bengals rushing attacks ranked number two in EPA per carry on running back rushes since week six. The Chiefs run defense has played the number two easiest schedule of run offenses overall. So if the Chiefs are going to give up a little bit on the ground, potentially to the Cincinnati Bengals, allow Joe Burrow to have some balance, protect him better than he was being protected last year in these games. You know, I, I think that that side of the ball could have some success. Now, I, I am intrigued, worried, I guess, but the fact that the Kansas City Chiefs have come out pretty strong against this team twice. You know, last season, people should remember, I mean, these were games that the Chiefs had locked up. The Chiefs were up, what was it, like 21 to 7, 28 to 7, something like that against the uh, Bengals in Kansas City week 17. And then they were up 21 to 10 at halftime uh, against the, and they, they were about to go up even more than that. If you remember the blunder down at the goal line in the AFC championship game where they were trying to call a, a, a play, they end up calling this ridiculously terrible screen pass to Tyreek Hill to end the half. They walk away with zero points on that drive. I fully believe if they scored points there, like there was no way since I was overcoming that level of a deficit at halftime, a 28 to 10. But because they did not do that, uh, they allowed Cincinnati to stay in the game. That was the game where like uh, Mahomes and, and, uh, Eric Bieniemy got into like a shouting or shoving match. I heard different things in the locker room at halftime. Uh, and obviously the, the, the Bengals came out and trashed them in the second half. The Bengals have allowed the Chiefs to score three points in the second half 
of each of those last two games. Three total points. That's on Lou Anarumo uh, and what he was able to do defensively um, against this team and, and how he was shutting down this Kansas City Chiefs offense. So I'm curious to see, like, he knows that formula. Why not pull out some of those great uh, strategies in the first half, right? Why wait to the second half of the game to shut down this offense? Why are you giving up 28 in the first half uh, in week 17, 21 in the first half in week uh, in the AFC championship game? Could have been even 28 in that game as well. Uh, Could they possibly implement some of those things that work so well in the second half in the first half to start this game out? I think this game's going to be uh, a fascinating one. I think, like I said, it's a big step up in class for this Chiefs defense. Uh, I like all the defensive adjustments that both of these coordinators tend to make at halftime. Um, but, you know, what's the strategy that Andy Reid's going to come out here uh, to start this game? And how are they going to play um, and and match up? I think, I don't know, there's just a lot to this game that um, I really find to be fascinating and these, this could be a preview of the AFC Championship game, in my opinion. I'm happy you brought up that you know Lou Anarumo's adjustments uh, in those games against Kansas City over the last um, the last two times that they played, because I do think that, and I've talked about this a lot this season, that this offense is better. This offense is better than when Patrick Mahomes had Tyreek Hill. It's averaging 1.23 EPA per offensive drive. That's better than M- than Mahomes' MVP season in 2018. Like it is two times what the second place team in that stat is this year. Like it is not just the best offense in the NFL. It's two times the second best offense in the NFL. And that's because they can be multiple. They can throw at every level of the football field and have success. They have players that can make plays after the catch. Sky Moore is having success down the stretch, the rookie out of Western Michigan. And now rookie running back Isaiah Pacheco with Clyde Edwards-Solaire on the injured reserve. His nickname is Pop. Why? Because they call him 10 yards of Pop. This guy is getting, This guy's having a lot of success in this Chiefs offense as well. I, I, I think that... Lou Anarumo, you look at the Titans, right? Lou Anarumo probably watched that Mike Vrabel scream of the only difference between us and all the other teams is Derrick Henry. And he's like, okay, we're just going to stop Derrick Henry. This one, I don't know what it is. You know, we talk about take away the best thing. What the fuck is the best thing of the Chiefs? Patrick Mahomes, you can't just take away Patrick Mahomes. Passing offense, intermediate, deep, shallow, Pacheco. There's too much here. There's too much. I don't know. And we were probably saying the same things last year. But I don't know if we were. Like, this offense is different. It's way better than it was last year. Way better, not way better than what is in 2018, but at the same levels of what Mahomes was doing in 2018. That's hard to do. I think this is going to be a shootout. And the team with the with the ball, with 11 seconds to go, I think is going to win this one. I think, honestly, that's what's going to be. I think that the Chiefs defense isn't going to have a lot of success stopping Cincinnati, especially if Jamar Chase is able to play. And I don't think the Bengals defense, as good as Lou Anarumo's been, is going to be able to put through full, you know, full four quarters uh, of enough play to not make this a shootout. So I, I lean Chiefs. I like Patrick Holmes. You give him eight seconds left in this game, trailing by one. I still think he wins. That's how good he's been this year and how good this offense has been. The fact that I can get it at a two and a half point spread, I'm taking the Chiefs on the money line. I'm taking the Chiefs minus two and a half. I love the Bengals. I think the Bengals have played a lot of, I had a lot of success of late. The Chiefs are the better team. And I think getting them before that number hits three, I think is the is the move here. One of, one of my final points on this game is I'm curious to see how Lou Anarumo approaches this. And what you mentioned a great point. The number one thing that you need to do is try to take away Patrick Mahomes. But how do you do that? And Cincinnati sent three or fewer pass rushers on 18 of Mahomes dropbacks in their last game and held Mahomes to 7 of 14 passing for 33 yards on those dropbacks. That's courtesy of Rich Rebar. So the rush three drop eight 
principle, I think, is something interesting here, especially when you now have DJ Reader back to help center that defensive line. And if you can try to limit rushing, you know, and make Andy Reid check to run plays, if you're utilizing this drop eight strategy, and that that's the only way that I really see Lou coming out in the first half and trying to slow down Patrick Mahomes and this Chiefs offense is to use a strategy like that and, and rely on that almost extensively now that you have, because totally different offense in what you played last week, right? You're going from, th- think about it, you're going from defending Derrick Henry and Ryan Tannehill to defending Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes, right? One team wants to run the ball a ton and has very limited creativity from a play calling perspective, especially later on in games. We already mentioned that. One team is extremely creative and wants to throw the ball a ton. And so last game, the Cincinnati Bengals stacked the box a ton, like one of the highest rates of the season, used DJ Reader, but they also stacked the box. This game, could they drop eight more and try to stop the run with DJ Reader, send guys up when the ball is handed off, but otherwise we're playing pass most of the time and daring Andy Reid to run the ball. And then what does Andy Reid do and how efficient is Patrick Mahomes against that? I think that is the number one strategy that Lou should implement. I'm just curious to see the chess match that's involved from the pre-flop strategy, how do they start the game in the first quarter, to then what adjustments are made thereafter? The, the drop eight defense, I think, is something that's going to be brought up a ton on a lot of the pregame discourse and people previewing this game. And, and Cincinnati, of any team in the NFL, has called rush three, drop eight, more than any team. You know, 40 dropbacks this season, Cincinnati has called rush three, drop eight, or rush three or fewer, or drop eight. And, and they've had success, right? A lot of 51.5% completion percentage on those plays, two sacks, 66.9 passer rating. Like, they've had success there. But you know, that, that's, that's 40 times they've done that, or 40 pass plays they've had that called in 11 games. Are you going to dial that up to, like, 10? Are you gonna, are, how, how much are you going to turn that dial to ask you know, your defensive line or, or, or ask your defense to drop eight when you have Pacheco in this run game. And I think that could, that could slow it down. That could make, the Chiefs could make you put more on the line of scrimmage. They could make you rush more players. And that, that's different than what they had last year. I think the run game is better than what they had last year. I think the offense entirely is better than what they had last year. So it will be interesting to see. I, 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 think it, don't think, I, I don't know if Lou has it. I don't know if Lou, I'm doubting Lou now. I'm doubting Lou. I don't know if Lou has it this year. This is the hardest offense to game plan against in the NFL by a fucking country mile. And I don't know... First half, second half, I don't know what he can pull out of his sleeve. But if he does, I'll say this, Warren. If he does, proves me wrong, beats the Cincinnati Bengals, shows off that game plan, forces an interception or two, some sacks to Patrick Mahomes, there shouldn't be a head coaching vacancy in the NFL that doesn't include Lou Anarumo. And what he's... Because I think there's reason to believe that what Lou Anarumo is doing defensively is bleeding into what Zach Taylor is doing offensively. And that he's seeing how, how much Anarumo adapts his game plan to opponents and how much he... Play doesn't play to the level, but plays to the strengths of his personnel. And Taylor is finally doing that. I don't know if it's because he's been able to see what Anarumo has been able to do, but man, I think Anarumo is going to be a hot, hot head coaching candidate if if he comes out of this game um, with an impressive performance. So that that's going to do it for the Ringer Gambling Show. Make sure to tune in to rest of the feed. We have Raheem Palmer on Sundays coming out. We're going to talk some college football. It's Championship Week, baby, with Roger Sherman. A lot of fun stuff. A lot of gambling conversation on the feed as we continue to roll through. Big shout out to our producer, Mike Morgan. Until next time, Austin Gale, Warren Sharp, The Ringer Gambling Show.